Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. Design thinking is part of innovation in every modern company. Inherently innovative companies often have design at the top table, like the role Johnny Ives has played at Apple. Today's guest, Harriet Wakelam, and her team of more than 40 designers are a great example of this inside-out transformation at IAG, where she's currently the director of the Design Centre. Harriet's previously held senior design roles and CX roles at CensusNAB, Aussie Post and Medibank, as well as being a board member for the Service Design Network. Harriet and I had a great conversation and included some big topics like integrating customer journey mapping and decision-making tools across an entire business, also bringing a make and create culture back in vogue, and what it takes to create plausible futures through asking what if, to ensure companies like IAG remain useful and relevant in whatever future may unfold. And finally, we really get into how can you implement design in your business from scratch? Over to Harriet. Let's talk a little bit about your career in design and design thinking. Which people and experiences have most inspired you and how did you build the skills through your career to be the innovator that you are today? I guess it started, the first person for me is my dad. My dad is an industrial designer. So I grew up in a household where you'd sometimes wake up and find 11 kettles on the kitchen bench top <laughs> and, you, and you would have to um, explain why you'd chosen this kettle to use. So my dad taught me a lot of, of why. I've always been interested in the way people use things and the way people do things. I studied English, actually, not design, in the, in the initial stages of my career. And that really set me up for a research career and a career of inquiry. And I think design is a process of inquiry as well as one of investigation and validation. Who's inspired me? Many, many people. The most inspiring people for me have often been the teams I work with because it is the work that you do together with your design team that pushes you to the edges of, of comfort. And I think that's where we should sit on the edge between comfort and panic. <laughs> <laughs> or would I say, uh, one of my team framed to me the other day, comfort, then there's courage, and then there's panic. And then I think that the panic part is where you don't want to be. So who's inspired me most? John Colco. I really like the way John Colco talks about stories. My teams, because my teams have brought me ideas and thinking and challenged my thinking. I think also I've had a lot of really good mentors, really great mentors, mentors who've asked me questions like, why is misalignment so interesting to you? And then a lot of scientists have interested me. So my recent, I have these things called brain crushes. Um, <laughs> my current brain crush is, is an 87-year-old man for, uh, who's involved in AI, a lady called Eleanor who runs the Department of Physics at, uh, and Engineering at the ANU, and my children. And the reason why is because they are all people who've asked me why. And every time somebody asks you why, you have to reframe your context. You have to reframe the thing that you're making and you have to go back and think about it. So that's what's inspired me. Yeah, children, it reminds me, we were at a conference together recently up in, in Byron Bay called Space, which was around bringing together some interesting minds to think big about solving problems for the, for the world. And you brought, I think you were the only one maybe who brought your daughter. What was that experience like? It was amazing. I think when you are a parent, it's like being a designer. You're trying to bring something new into a context 
with the capability to operate in the future. And your children are sort of probably some of the biggest examples of that. And to do that relationship with my daughter was really interesting. She came back and said, I hadn't realized that there were that many grown-ups that had interesting things to say. <laughs> and she also said, people my age don't ask questions like that of each other. And that made me really reflect that as designers and innovators, we have to encourage people to ask questions and it comes naturally to us. But sometimes in our businesses or in our workplaces, we assume that the questions that we see as obvious, everybody else sees and we forget to ask them. And we often reflect in this team about that, that we'll look at something and we'll, we'll say, well, duh. And actually, I think one of the skills that we need to bring is to ask that. And having my daughter with me was like that. She asked me why is essentially all the time. And it's changed the relationship and the conversations we've had and the way that probably her career will go. Let's talk a little about IAG. Uh, you've been here how many years? Three. Three years. And Actually, I think three years almost to the day. And it's coincided with, from the market perspective, IAG's grown, the ambition's grown, amazing things starting to come out. You're part of the innovation group there, which is amazing. Talk a little bit about the role of design in IAG, um, particularly since you've been here and how that's grown. So we started off, our story started um, with awareness. So when I came in, we'd been running boot camps. Um, and those boot camps had raised a tremendous awareness of HCD and design thinking. We didn't have a design team as such. We had pockets of UX and we had pockets of designers, but we didn't have a group of consolidated cross-functional designers. The community part was really interesting for IAG's story. So when I came in, what we did was looked at the value that the community had brought, but we also looked at the design skill set and we said, what do we want design to do here? And what do we want designers to do? And they were very different things. So we decided that the community's role was to help IAG to understand design. And that meant choosing two or three skills. And we said, if the business could set objectives from a customer perspective, and if they could investigate and validate, obviously three key design skills, then they would be able to frame problems from a different perspective. And therefore then the role of the designers, which is to work and create an ambiguity and make decisions would be more effective. So we've been on this journey. We looked at our community. We actually reshaped it a little bit. We made it very much an evidence-based community. And we said, how do we help the business understand what design is and that it is an evidence-based practice? And then we recruited and grew a design center, which has uh, designers with UX, UI, service design strategy. And we're a very diverse bunch, and that's been a really purposeful piece of work. Because I think when you get diverse thinking, you then get creativity and you get challenge and you get honest conversation and critique. And one of the dangers in corporate innovation is that you fall in love with your ideas constantly. Uh, so we have an ability for our designers to move horizontally. So I know that a good UXer might not just be a good UXer, they might also have some amazing new thinking. We know that people in design often want to work horizontally and there are very few places in corporate design that you don't come in and get put into a sort of single siloed career. So we've created that option. We've created the most difficult one to manage of all. We're a centralized design model, but with a horizontal mm. application. And that is probably difficult to explain to the business. So we've started talking about offerings. We start talking about we've got offerings in future practice, which needs a better name, but we're still working on it. <laughs> and that's where we work on the really big problems with strategists. We're working with innovation, which is obviously adjacent markets, new commercial models to market, then with CX, with experience design. But the value of having that horizontal view means that we can actually pull and push. It's like having a giant Lego kit. And we can pull from those different disciplines in ways that either 
places I've worked have not been able to. You talked about the adjacent markets and the innovation work, new ideas. How does design work with the business at the fulcrum of ideation? Is it hand in hand? Does the business start and no, design come in to validate? Is it the other way around? How does, how does that work in the, in the business? I think we start, we have, we have the tendency, like all big corporates, to have those giant ideas that land. We are quite lucky here. We, we have the opportunity more and more to be really part of the innovation process. So last year, we redesigned our innovation framework mm. as part of our Feynman Labs. And we made it very much so that we talked about desirability and we talked about the accelerate phase, not about the design phase and the execute phase. So we've been very careful in the language we've used so that we don't get tied down in methodology or we don't get tied down in roles or names, but we talk about practices. And in design, I like to think of it as praxis, practice and theory. So where designers sit, well, we're embedded in all of those parts. We have an R&D team, but our designers work with the R&D team and they're working at the big emergent learning option space. We have desirability sprints running on customer where we have designers working in there on customer need. The models would be very familiar the way we're using them is different. And in our Accelerate phase, we have more of our multi-talented, so people who can do a bit of coding, a bit of making, um, because we're moving closer and closer to that market. And the way I like to think about it is problems exist from ambiguous through to more certain. And in innovation, you're moving something closer and closer and closer to certainty. At the point you reach certainty, it's BAU anyway. And our designers in IAG are right across that hole from the early and emergent and ambiguous ideas right through to the delivery to market. And so another question then is, and this may be an emerging challenge for you or not yet, but I've seen with when large practices emerge outside of the business itself or not in a line of business, this challenge of being a cost center can emerge, i.e. how do you define the value that you create? How do you not become a target for a cost out because we can't define the value creation, et cetera? Has that become a challenge, an emerging challenge for you? Or how do you define your value of, the value of design back to the business so it's really clear and tangible? Yes, the idea of value is a challenge to us, but that was one of the reasons why we wanted to reframe the community and the design centre in the first place. So we're a risk-based business. And in a risk-based business, if you can't show your value, then you're a risk. So one of the reasons for moving to evidence-based design and really rigorous evidence-based design is because we need to be able to tangibly show the value. So we use evidence-based design frameworks, but also on a bigger scale, how do we not become a cost center? We have been trying to reframe the idea of a design center as a startup within a business. So like most corporates, we haven't had design for a long time and you wouldn't expect a startup to be producing a high level of revenue in its first three to five years. So my argument has been, you can't expect us to become a cost center until we have a business that fully understands the value of design. That bounces the challenge back like ping pong to me, which says, okay, tell us the value of design. So I feel like it's more of a design problem. At the moment, we, we do have a cost challenge in, in our business, like all businesses. Mm -hmm. I think the movement in the market around relatedness and trust, around ethics and vulnerability, and some of the things that are facing insurance at the moment help with that. Because what we're starting to explore is what are the metrics of risk? What are the metrics of relatedness? And inside IAG at the moment, one of the, the things about working here at the moment is that we have access to really great data scientists, really interesting risk models. So we are inside the design center looking at our own metrics and saying, could we measure ourselves in relation to the relatedness? We know that we work across more projects across the business than most other areas. How can we measure that? 
we've got areas working on trust and ethics. And like, we're lucky enough, I think, you know, we're looking at Google employing philosophers. I think that has given a little bit of permission to think differently, but it does mean design didn't do itself any favors because we leapt into corporate at 100 miles an hour, said we could solve everything. And actually that's not true. So for me here, it's about saying what we can do and what we can't. So we're not the workshop team. No, we can't help you solve this problem. That's not a design problem, but this one is. You talk about Google and philosophers. What are the skills, experiences that you look for in your design team to bring something different? How do, you, how do you find the people? So I think it was Ed Catmull who talks about if you give a good problem to a mediocre team, they'll make a mediocre solution. And if you give a mediocre problem to a good team, they'll make a great solution. So we look for people who can manage ambiguity and be decisive simultaneously. And that sounds kind of weird, but it's really core to what we do. So managing ambiguity and being decisive. And those two things are unusual to find. We look for people who can architect, and that might be architecting ideas, it might be architecting and making, it might be architecting team, but you need to be able to think in terms of systems and making and architecting. I look for makers as much as I look for thinkers, because people who make are creating future experiences in which people can immerse themselves, and, and they, can, they are making in order to describe. But that doesn't mean that all the designers that work here can make as in make a prototype, but they might be able to make a model from something really complex. They might be able to make a framework from a really, really difficult set of information. I look for people people because you can't be a designer without building relatedness. You have to be able to be vulnerable. You have to be able to look and to connect. And I also look for people who are interested in growing others because Again, there's no space inside design and there's no space inside large organizations for rock stars. That whole era of the rock star, hopefully, I think, has, has gone. And I'm interested in people who have passionate, weird sort of interests that, that I find fascinating because people who can lose themselves in thought often are really great at stimulating people to think differently. Design skills as well. We fully listed and mapped all our capabilities. We look for people who have all of the usual skills you'd expect from designers. Great UX skills, great UI skills, great service design skills. But I'm really interested by what happens when you mash those together horizontally. Let's explore more the risk question yep. because, as you said, your business is about risk. You are doing some incredible things with design in the space of risk. It's something that every organisation, every board wrestles with, but it doesn't often sound sexy. In fact, some risk and design in the same conversation might even be weird for some companies. So tell us about the work that you're doing in that, in that domain. We have a, a purpose here, which is to make the world a safer place. And essentially, if you think of risk, it's about transferring the risk from the danger and from the individual. So the world and risk only sound boring when you think of them like a thing that's done in a cupboard with a risk ledger. Actually, risk is something we do every day, every time we cross the road, every time we, we do anything really in the world. And the world is talking about personalization and every one of us takes risk differently. What I might find dangerous, you might not. My son loves to climb. Um, he likes to climb without ropes. I find that the most ridiculous thing in the whole wide world. My appetite to risk is not to climb anything and definitely not without ropes. We're doing some work. So the work we're doing in our climate change space is really interesting around that because we took the skills of design and we said, if strategy describes to make 
and design makes to describe. How can we use that to help people think differently about the risks of climate change? So what we've been doing is we've been building these futures or these immersive or these plausible futures around climate change. Um, we've got a climate action plan. We have a big commitment in the market to climate change. And obviously, we insure people's homes. So we have quite a lot of interest in climate change. So what we've been doing is bringing together what we know about strategy and risk. And we've been looking at how we can help our business challenge the assumptions of what that might look like so we can design products and services that are new to the market. So for example, Will we think differently about risk in the future? Will we think differently about insurance in the future? Our job is to make the world safer, but how can we help people make decisions that are different? And what kind of company do we need to become to do that? So we've made four plausible futures at the moment about climate change, and we're using them with our product people, and we've got a workshop next week with our marketing teams, where we bring them in, and it uses all the senses. They've got audio, they've got some video, they're quite rough and ready. Think of them like a prototype. Our designers use prototyping to get people to understand how you might use something. This is an experiential prototype. It is used to help our business think about how our people might think and experience things. And when you use a prototype, you make different types of decisions. When you use our futures and our immersive futures, you make different types of decisions. If we do this, we'll meet the purpose of the business and we'll reduce the risk of our people. It reminds me a little bit of scenario planning from like corporate strategy stuff of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. I think there was a bit of that going on, but it feels like it's richer, more emergent, prototyping yeah. oriented rather than here is future X or future Y. It gives you the alliance to the business purpose and allows the business to, I guess, evolve with the. Yeah, I think there's, there's several types of scenario planning, and the one that really interested us, we, we borrowed from Shell and we borrowed from the, what they call the Oxford approach. And we've mashed that together with design because what was really interesting about that was about it reframed the conversations the business was having strategically. So the purpose of a scenario for us is, and the ones we've made have objects that you can touch and play with. They have a little bit of video and they have some audio and some narrative. We used our personas to create the narrative and we use our trends and, and strategy work to create the framework. The purpose for them is to help people sit in a space that is different to hear the world from a different perspective, and then to look at where what is coming at us from the future meets where we are strong as a business. And it forces us to make different types of decisions about what we might need to get stronger at or what we might need to stop. And what we find is it challenges assumptions. It's very powerful. It's much more powerful than brainstorming. It's much more powerful than ideation because what it forces people to do is to set aside the assumptions they have about the future and to say, in this context, what is it that we do that would no longer be relevant and how would we have to change it? And what we find is in rooms, when we use these scenarios, the conversations in the room are those yes and questions. And what I find in ideation sessions are often their yes but. So it's a very constructive, a very additive way to have different types of strategic conversations. And the ideas that are coming out of those are really interesting. In six hours, we've had more ideas that could be taken to market in a shorter time than I've seen from many different techniques. So I'm, as you can tell, a bit excited about this. <laughs> and yeah, it draws from scenario planning, but in good design fashion, we've mashed it together with the skills of design and the skills of making. Obviously, we're starting to see the startup ecosystem start to emerge, more unicorns coming out of Australia, probably not nearly enough yet, but at least we're starting to see that move. In the corporate world, it can be a bit disheartening sometimes. Have we got the ambition right? Where is the corporate innovation coming from? What's the state of corporate innovation in Australia? Oh, I think 
we are innovators. I mean, there's always those stories about we invented the best or the most efficient grape harvester in the world, and then we let France have it. <laughs> we invented, you know, Wi-Fi. We invented yeah, all those stories. I think we're moving out of a time of the lab and into a time where organizations are having to change. I think Agile started us on those processes. We've been on a journey for quite some time. It feels to me that we're seeing a shift in innovation away from the lab and the value of an idea into the practice and how things come to life. And that's where this, the scenarios work interests me so much. In order to be really innovative, you actually have to be really an ego-driven, if that's the right way. We've spent a lot of time over the last 25 years of management culture taking all of the making and creating out of organizations and creating decks. And we're having to bring back making and creating. And so what is the role for me of, of innovation and design in organizations? It, it's actually reminding people how to make, because when you make, you have to move more slowly. And we see so often, here's a 150-page deck, this is how we're going to change. Everyone goes, yep, 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 that looks fantastic. Everyone gets a copy of the deck and nothing changes. So what we're starting to see, and, and I think it started in some innovation labs and it started in some of the startups, it's now moving to the more senior levels of the organization. If you look at sort of what Australia was, we were innovators and makers and our corporates have stopped being innovators and makers. So I would see what started in our labs actually spreading back into the business and, and our makers and designers and creators starting to become part of core teams and maybe even not having innovation teams anymore. And I think John Mader uses the phrase startups and end-ups. And he said the problem we had for the last few years is that every startup wanted to be a big corporate and every big corporate wanted to be a startup. And I think what we're now starting to see is that there is a role for corporates in innovation, which is actually to foster and to enable making to happen in bigger and, and brighter ways. How do you think about building a growth strategy in an organization and, and possibly using IOG as an example? How do we start to set the company in a direction towards these new potential futures in a way that's aligning, that everybody can see, understand, and know their part in? So what, how do you build a growth strategy? So, so we, we're obviously entering a growth period for IAG. Mobility, let's take mobility. Mobility is one of our key focuses, obviously, because we insure cars and mobility is changing. If we look at what's happening in our mobility space, there's work going on in the emergent future. So we're working with emerging telematics, we're working with AI, we're working with the changing and preparing for vehicles, mobility as a service. We have a trial with the University of New South Wales and New South Wales government at the moment around mobility as a service. Those are emerging and interesting edge pieces of work. And then we have changes that are going on to mobility in our core business. You know, cars are getting safer. How do we repair them more effectively, more efficiently? How do we predict crashes? How do we actually get involved in doing that work? And growth requires a configuration space in the middle. I think what's happened in the past is that we've had a strategy to do something innovative and it's been thrown over the wall to the makers and they've said, up here have said, how about you make something new for mobility? And the makers down here have gone, yeah, no problem. Here you go. And they go, no, not like that. <laughs> and what's happening... You should make more money than that. <laughs> <laughs> what's happening is this emerging space in the middle, which is where innovators sit, our designers, our makers, our product people, people with the craft and skills to create, are starting to help both ends of that make different types of decisions. So we're, it's not about whether we're 
innovating faster, but more about are we able to move things forward? Things start in the center, and our job in big corporates is to work out as quickly as possible where that idea can go to be best developed. So if a concept comes out of a, an idea, is it best that it sits with the people who are able to play at the very edges of adjacency and possibility? Or actually, is it so simple that, or so obvious or so quick to make that it goes into our business as usual and it just makes a better product tomorrow? And in the past, I think we thought better and worse. Growth to me is actually, as we start to make these, it's like a giant set of cogs and wheels. And I think that growth strategy will come from leveraging what we've built in the edge spaces, helping to configure it more effectively in the middle, and then enabling the ideas to flow more, more quickly to the right people. So for us, that's probably starting to come through in the way that we're helping people move differently. So you would have seen the, the CABA acquisition for us in market recently, which is about changing the way that we help to give people access to vehicles. We're doing work in that, as I said, that prevention place. How can we actually prevent crashes and how can we actually, when they do happen, repair them faster? And then actually, how do we actually help people as they start to move into electric vehicles or emerging vehicles approach mobility in a safe way? And our ambition really is just to, to make it safer. So growth comes as part of unifying 13,500 people around that kind of piece and actually killing that idea of the rock star and showing how all of those things work together. So mobility then is a domain of innovation that IAG's mapped out, which is great. So you set some guardrails and directions yep. and then the organisation can naturally start to create ideas within that and those ideas take shape and find their natural home. And they're occurring in our customer labs area, which is where we're working in the future spaces, and they're occurring with innovation in our core business or our Australia division. So we're seeing our innovation happen in both of those spaces. And then we're seeing this connection of them around the guardrails. And the guardrails are important. Like, it's so interesting mm -hmm. you picked up on that. You know, design, people often think design is about blue sky thinking. It's not. It's about context and how do you create the best thing for a context. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we're, we're spending a lot of time. Let's talk then about governance of that. It's funny when I mention the word governance, people, like people with risk, people often go, huh. I was just thinking it's <laughs> like risk. <laughs> but I get excited about governance because for me, when I think of governance, governance is how the organisation organises mm. to succeed, right? And when it comes to innovation and growth, I think what we're learning is there are often different questions, different rhythms, different cadences, different investment cycles, etc., to maybe how we mm. run our, our core business. And in fact, I've seen a lot of the failures of innovation systems or labs, et cetera, come down to the question of governance as opposed to the quality of what was being done necessarily. What is successful governance or how do we need to evolve how we govern design, innovation, growth within an organisation so that it has the room, the room to breathe? We need these emergent forms of governance, but I think it's as much about the detail of them. So at the very ambiguous end, we simply need to be asking some very simple questions about whether this meets our core strategy, whether there are some very key things that this thing will do. And then we need the courage to make decisions. And I think where governance often becomes a problem is where you get traditional business models with the analysis and the requirement for detail, requiring detail before you have it. And the problem with many innovation models is actually you do need some detail. And innovation models without any form of stop or reflection or any form of metrics are just as dangerous as, as old business. So for me, it's about what decisions need to be made at what part of the invention process, 
who should make them and how do we ensure that they're understood. And I think that changes very much because businesses are traditionally siloed. So it used to be that the innovation people did this and the business as usual people did that. For me, governance around innovation is making sure that it's understood that innovation is an evolution of certainty. And once that's understood, that means that the level of detail that we can provide at each stage of that will change. So there should be an expectation that at the right level of certainty, we provide the right level of detail. So what does that work like in practice? Often we fail to deliver an innovation because the problem was too big. We try to put a four-week sprint on something which is actually an emerging learning option. Can we solve mobility? You know, and that, actually the how <laughs> might we question was a bit of a problem with this. How might we solve the problems our customers are having with affordability? Oh, let's get to a four-week sprint. Well, no, because that question doesn't belong there. It belongs right up at the ambiguous end. So does it align with our strategy? Yes. Do we have enough information or evidence? No. What are our hypotheses around this or what are our opinions about this? And then what value will it bring? They're as simple as the questions you need at that end. If you're still asking those questions at the delivery end, then you've got a problem. So for me, governance, that was a long answer, but governance is about making sure you've got the right questions at the right part of certainty and helping the organization understand who is accountable for that section at each time. And then as you pass it on, making sure you meet it. We often go innovation special, innovation's different. Often my question is, is the question small enough? Because if the question's small enough and it sits within a big enough question, then it can be answered in a three-month cycle. But what we need to do is take the business on that narrative. And we can say, right, you want to explore the future of mobility. We've gone out and we've gone, these are some of the opinions about it. These are some of the areas where we lack evidence. These are the experiments we're going to be running and these are the value we believe it's going to bring. And that will contribute to the evolution of this learning option. And that can be delivered in cycles. It can be delivered in monthly reports. But it's what it's delivered. And I think in a design team, we often forget this too, that the skills of design are about helping to create a consistent and a coherent narrative and context about something that doesn't yet exist. And in innovation, that is absolutely essential. Because if the board is expecting 100 million of revenue out of something that takes 12 months to build, well, that's not ever going to happen. We can promise it all we like. If we can take people on the journey and say, oh, you want 100 million, we think our bets, we're going to take this amount of money and we're going to bet it here. And we're going to tell you at the end of the, of the next three months what decisions you need to make next. That's quite a confidence building decision. And, and I think there's no reason why we can't deliver results in that time. The question is which results? Let's move a little bit into successes. And what would you say from your many you know, decades in the field, what would you point to as some of the big successes of the process of design, the process of innovation, things that you've just brought utter joy to your, your soul? <laughs> <laughs> Again, a lot of it goes back to people. I think helping people thrive, designers thrive within large organisations. It's easy to forget that when you go in as a design team into a large organisation, you're going in with creative mindsets into organizations that have traditionally valued success and analytics. And even like in today's world, analytics, which absolutely are important, mm. helping people thrive and helping creative mindsets thrive in that environment brings me joy. Seeing some of the tools of design become core and integral to business, you would have walked past journey maps. Journey maps used to be seen as a, an output and now they're just a business decision-making tool. 
They're a benchmarking tool. And when used effectively, they help show us where to focus. Seeing that mature has brought me joy. Seeing making come back into style, being able to build these climate change scenarios and watching what happens when a creative team is allowed or permitted to make in a way that changes thinking. I think seeing better tools, like we, we, the apps we use today, the tools we use today are more inclusive. They help make our lives simpler. I think we're starting to face into the next level of that is how do they bring good beyond just revenue? And that's really, really interesting. And I think the fact that we've got to that is because of some of the iterative innovation processes that we're seeing. When I look at things like climate change, if we can make it simpler for people to make different decisions about their assets and their futures in relation to climate change, and we can do that in a way that helps them protect themselves and their assets, whether those are physical assets or, or people, then that brings me joy. And bringing my craft to that practice and having it in with the decision-making model, that brings me joy. Customer journeys are one of those moments where design actually helps transform an organization. And so maybe just to hear a little bit more about how that's happened here at IAG and the impact that it's having in a little bit more detail. So, so we, like lots of organizations are, part of our transformation project is our journeys program, which sits with our digital team, but also more broadly across the business. So we have customer journeys, we have journeys at the, the business level, and we have our digital journeys. Customer journey mapping is a practice that IAG has adopted. And it's a practice that's helped us work horizontally um, across Tasman, and it's helping us to focus where we really need to, where we can make most difference. And we have our design, we have a large design team within a journeys team, working with all the usual people who work on journeys, all of our process people, tech people, etc. For a designer, it's a delight. A journey is a model, and it's a model which says, in terms of acquisition and retention, where should we focus for maximum benefit? In terms of our customers, where can we focus in terms of maximum benefit? And it becomes a tool that enables trade-offs to deliver value. And that, for me, is something that when I started my design career, design journeys weren't even talked about. And now they've moved out of being a design tool into being a core business tool. And they're a language, for me, they're a visual language. They're a language that reduces some of the complexity of decisions we need to make and allows people to apply the expertise they have to the right part of where they should. They're really an enabling tool. Journeys allow people to stand together around something that is visual and say, why would we put effort here when we're causing trouble here? Or if we truly get this innovation right that's sitting right out in the future, what would it do to today's journey? And that is a, a tool for conversation, for strategic conversation making. And that makes me really proud to have brought design, that kind of design tool into organizations. For maybe some of the people who are listening who are newer to this or they're in a situation within maybe a slightly smaller company than IAG or, or certainly newer to design innovation, where they're thinking, hey, where do I start? We've got some ambitions as a company. We're looking to put a growth strategy in place or move into new domains. We may have some UX, UI, but we don't have a very formed design practice or community or capability in the company. Where should I begin? What's the first thing I should do to start on this journey? I'd say treat it like an experiment. Start with something really small and run an experiment. There will be a question, something you want answered, something you want done. If you have no design capacity, 
lean out to one of the big companies and go and bring some people in to come and have a chat. We're quite generous people. <laughs> and I think, you know, ANZ, Combank, uh, IAG, a lot of us now have big design teams and there are lots of meetups. I would go and listen and ask those people in to your organization to chat to you and think about something really small. Just think about what is one thing that you would like to do. There was a great experiment run here by our community where they just wanted to stop paper cup use. It's nothing to do with the business value overall, but as part of our community piece, they said, how would we do that? And they managed to do that, and they managed to stop paper cup use within the company. We no longer have paper cups next to our coffee machines. They were able to validate the reduction in cost of that to the business. It doesn't look like a design project, but it is. So I say, go find people, connect, listen to the stories that they tell, ask for help, and start with something really small and tangible, because it's like a prototype. Design always talks about prototypes. If you can make something and you can show the impact of that something, people tend to invite you back for more. We were lucky also that we had the support of senior leadership to start design here. There was a big commitment. But if you don't have that, create something small so that you can take that to senior leadership and say, hey, I've done this thing. This is the power it's brought. This is what other people are doing with it. Can we do some more of it? And, and I think that usually works. Start small, win gather, align people around it and get in there. Because it's so much easier. 150-page deck is great, but no one's going to believe it the same as if you show them something that someone can use and make and that has made a difference. Mm. Thank you so much. An incredible plethora of insights there. And we have one of the most exciting design practices in the country, growing from strength to strength. So we're going to be cheering for you as you continue (laughs) to take this company forward. And the innovations we're already starting to see emerge, we're going to see more and more of those the year ahead. Thank you for the question. Uh, Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Corporate Innovator. As always, thanks for listening. And if you're loving the episodes, be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.